Well, we're in a series that we're calling I Believe. And we're looking at some of the absolutes of Christianity. Some of those things that are clearly and regularly taught in the Bible. Those things that have been believed across denominational lines and throughout church history. And this morning we come to the center of all of those topics, and that's Jesus. I believe in Jesus. We talked about the Bible a few weeks ago, I said. The Bible has a point and a purpose. The point is Jesus. The purpose is to lead us to him, which means the Bible is about Jesus in one way or another. Well, long story short, that means we're not going to be able to pack everything that we're going to do in the series into one week. So we're going to look at Jesus for a few weeks. We're going to get started this morning by looking at the identity of Christ. Who is he? And how can we come to understand that and then live in light of that? Now, in order to do that, we're going to look at a conversation that took place between Jesus and the disciples all the way back in Matthew chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. We actually have the conversation recorded and up on the screens. So here's what we read in Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter, usually not lost for words, speaks. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, Peter doesn't always get it right, but he gets this one right. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So uh, let's see what's going on in the conversation. Jesus is catching a little R&R with his disciples. They go to Caesarea Philippi, and then Jesus says, well, let me use this as a teaching opportunity. What's word on the street, guys? Who do people say that I am? In the office, on the shop floors, you're in the marketplace. Who do people say that I am? And they rattle off some of these answers. Well, some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Now, in case you haven't noticed, they're all heavy hitters, right? John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah. Oh yeah, but one thing all those brothers have in common, they're all dead. So word on the street is, Jesus is some kind of reincarnation, resurrected prophet of sorts. But then Jesus gets to the real point. But who do you say that I am? If that's word on the street, what's the word in your head? What's the word in your life? Well, uh, this isn't. Uh, the first century, it's the 21st century. And so word on the street concerning Jesus would be different today than it was back then. So uh, let's think together. Who do people in our world say that Jesus is? Well, Muslims believe in Jesus. In fact, Jesus shows up in the Quran a few times. Jesus is taught to be a prophet. In fact, a really good prophet, one of the best prophets um, within Judaism they believe in Jesus. They believe that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, but he was not. Either he was mistaken or he was kind of seeking to lead people astray. And literally billions of people have been misled because Jesus is not the Messiah. Well, how about Hindus? Well, some Hindus believe that Jesus is another reincarnation of Vishnu, one of their gods. And so Jesus kind of showed up and he is a reincarnation of a god that they believe in within the Hindu world. 
Atheists and agnostics, they would say, well, Jesus is a good teacher. You know, he probably existed as best we can tell for history. A really good example. But you know, all that God stuff, that miracle stuff, we have to get rid of all that. Well, how about just non-Christians by and large? I think most non-Christians would say, hey, Jesus is essentially irrelevant. So yeah, he may or may not have existed, but even if he did, so what? Hey, how's that going to help me take care of my family? Is that going to help me at work tomorrow? What difference does Jesus make? He may or may not have existed, but is he relevant if he did? And then maybe one of the sadder answers. The answer given by lots of people that show up at church. Lots of people that show up at church this morning. Maybe not here, but churches around the world. Jesus to uh, lots of people, lots of churchgoers, He's kind of like an app that you put on your phone, but you never really ever use. You have any, how many of you have an app on your phone that you really never use or refer to? Yeah, you put them on there, right? Well, lots of people have Jesus as an irrelevant app. You know, it's good that, you know, you kind of download him into your life a little bit. You kind of, you're glad he's there, but you really hope you never need him. And for the most part, by and large, week by week, you really don't need Jesus. You don't think about Jesus. He's kind of there, but you're hoping and you sure don't believe you're going to need him in any serious way. Wouldn't that be some of the list of answers we'd hear in our culture? Who do people say that I am? What's word on the street? Yeah, but let's get to the real question. Who do you say that he is? Inside your head, inside your heart, in your life. And don't just answer with your mouth. Suppose someone were to follow you around for a week or so. Suppose, you know, we, we hooked up, you know, some kind of private investigator to follow you around this week. What would they say you think about Jesus next Sunday morning if we interviewed them? What would they say you think of Jesus and who is he to you? You see, that's kind of what Jesus is getting at. Who do you say that I am? I think we need to uh, consider carefully Peter's answer. And we need to consider our answer because our future depends on it. Our forever depends on it. It's a serious question and a sobering answer. Peter gets it right, and we're going to look at the two parts of his answer. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Well, first of all, Messiah. Now, you may, if you're reading the Bible in a, a translation seated in your lap or on your phone or whatever, you may not have the word Messiah. You may have Christ. And so when Peter answers, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. What's up with that? How come the word change? It's actually the same word. Hebrew, it's Messiah. Greek, Christ, same word. Hebrew, you say Messiah. Greek, you say Christ. We have Greek translations of the New Testament that have been translated into English. That's why we often wind up with Christ. The newer translation says, no, let's use Messiah. Same exact word. What does Messiah or Christ mean? All it means is anointed. So it doesn't have any real specific meaning. That meaning grows as you go through the Bible. But the word Messiah, the word Christ, just means anointed. Whatever is the question. Who then got anointed? Well, in the Old Testament, kings got anointed. And so if you read through the book of King, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll discover that often the kings are called Messiah because they were anointed. And so like 20-some times in the Old Testament... Human kings were called Messiah because Messiah was, an, was somebody that was anointed and kings got anointed. Notice Peter says, you are the Messiah. He doesn't say another. He doesn't say, well, you're kind of another person that's anointed. No, you are the Messiah. 
But the location of the declaration is more than coincidental. Um, you remember where this conversation took place? Remember that? It was in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea. So let me ask you a couple questions about that. What does the name Caesarea sound like? What, what's that, what word do you use more common? In, what, what's it sound like? Caesar. Caesar. Do you know why Caesarea sounds like Caesar? Because Caesar Augustus named Caesarea. Why did he name it Caesarea? He named it after himself. All right? A lot of ego in the guy, right? Just like a typical politician. Lots of ego. He names the town after himself. He then builds a temple there so that the people can go to the temple in Caesarea, named Caesar, and worship the emperor Caesar. What does the word Philippi sound like? Caesarea, what does Philippi sound like? Philip. Philip. Well, who the heck is Philip? Philip was Herod's son. Herod Philip is then given that part of the, you know, that part of geography to rule. So he didn't have the guts to change the name from Caesar to Philip. He just adds his little name to the Caesar name, and now it's Caesarea Philippi. So here's what it's like. This town is called Philip because Philip is the regional power. It, our town is called Caesar because Caesar is the world power. And in the midst of Caesar Philip, Peter says, you are the king. That was treasonous, friends. Peter, in a sense, had better be among friends because that was treason to say Jesus is the king and you wouldn't be a fool to say Jesus is the king in a place named for Caesar and a place named for Philip. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The location helps us understand the declaration. Oh, it even gets better. The town used to be called Panias before it was called Caesar Philip. Have you ever heard of pantheism? Right? Pantheism is the religion that was named for Pan, the god Pan. There was a big temple to Pan in Panias that became Caesarea Philippi. You're thinking, what's pantheism? How many of you, raise your hand, it's, it's okay. How many of you have seen Avatar? Raise your hand. All right, if you've seen Avatar, you know about pantheism, right? Everything is God and God is everything. That's Avatar, right? Everything is God and God is everything. Okay, the God Pan is the beginning of pantheism. And so what's Peter saying? Think about how radical Peter's comment is. In the middle of the town, named for Caesar and Philip, the two ruling powers of the world, and in the, name, and in the town used to be called Pan, after the pantheistic god of Pan, Peter says, you are the king. King over earthly kings and king over spiritual kings. Jesus, you are the real king. Wow, Peter gets it right, doesn't he? Now, he misses some of what Messiah means, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But boy, he certainly gets that part, right? Last week, we uh, talked about the two circles from crew. Remember that? Well, somebody dug them out this week. There, there they go. The circles from the four spiritual laws. I thought about them. There they go. And now let me explain them to you. Inside the blue is kind of your life and my life. Outside the blue is kind of outside the life. And the chair in the middle is kind of like the throne, the control center, right? So in the circle on your left, you see S's on the throne. That means self. You are running your own life. And if you look at all the little, little circles in the circle, you realize they're out of proportion, out of whack, right? Because when we try to govern our lives, everything's kind of a mess. 
But when Jesus is on the throne, when he's the center, when he is the Messiah, king of the life, things are kind of orderly and consistent. As you read through the Bible, here's part of what what you discover. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is king of the cosmos. King of the cosmos. Do you know the word cosmos actually means orderly, harmonious. We get the word cosmetic from cosmos. Because before you put it on, it's chaos. After you put it on, it looks better, right? You've looked in the mirror first thing, and I did this morning. I scared myself this morning. And then you do a little work, right? And after you do a little work, you look a little cosmos out of the chaos. Chaos is the opposite. Everything's a mess. Everything's confused. Everything's kind of up in the air, just like the two circles. So think of it this way. Our band, the eight people that were up here this morning, they played like a cosmos, didn't they? It's orderly. It's harmonious. It fits together. They belong together. That's cosmos. Now, if I just walked around and distributed instruments and microphones just randomly and had eight of you come up here and play, it would be chaos at best, right? Even if you knew how to play, we give you the wrong instrument, it would be a mess. So here's the question. If it's cosmos where Christ is king and chaos where Christ is not king, what's your life like? Is your life more like a cosmos or more like a chaos? To the extent that Christ is king, there will be cosmos. To the extent Christ is not king, there will be chaos. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that where Christ is king, you'll never have a problem, you'll never have a difficulty, never have a broken heart or be um, confused. You know, you'll never be confused or broken heart. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is where Christ is king, there will be poise. Where Christ is king, there will be peace. Where Christ is not king, there will be chaos and disorder, fighting for your rights, sticking, warring with other people, conflict all the time. To the degree Christ is king, there will be cosmos. To the degree he's not king, there will be chaos. So let's go back to the question, who do you say that he is? If you say Christ is king, is he really king? Or is Jesus like an app on your phone? He's kind of there, but he's essentially irrelevant to how you live. Who do you say that he is? Peter says, You're the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of the cosmos. And we need to have that king as king of our lives. That's the first part of the answer. What about the second thing Peter says? Not just you are the Messiah. He says you are the son of the living God. Son of the living God. Jesus, the son of God. Now again, it's somewhat confusing because as you read through the Old Testament, a lot of people are called sons of God. And so often kings are called sons of God. Sometimes people that aren't even followers of God are called sons of God. Okay, a son of God is someone that holds a position, right? Someone living with authority. But notice, Peter says, not just you are the Messiah, you are the son of God. You know, the best commentary that I know of on what son of God means isn't in the Gospels, it's actually in the epistles. It's in Colossians chapter 1, beginning of verse 15. So I'm going to read a few verses, they'll be on the screen, from Colossians 1. And if you want to know what it means that Jesus is Son of God, you need to mark this passage or go back and visit it. Now again, we don't have time to work through all the the details here, but let me just read it and tease out a couple of things concerning Jesus, Son of God. Here's what Paul says. The Son, right, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now when I read that, some people immediately have a misunderstanding of what Paul wrote because the first thing I read is, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Oh, so Jesus was like the first one born. No, that's not what Paul said. Yes, it is. No, it's not. We think that may be what he meant because it's the 21st century. He wrote it in the first century. Nobody would have thought that. Paul is not saying there was a time when Jesus was not, then all of a sudden he was created or born. Look down a couple lines. He created all things. Well, how in the world could he create all things if he's created? What things did he not create? Something beside all things. Well, all th he's not created. Well, what in the world does it mean that he's firstborn? Well, again, leave the 21st century in your mind. Go back to the first century. Here's what's going on. It's all about the law of primogeniture. That's a fancy word, right? You, you can go on Jeopardy and win primogeniture. Okay, here's primogeniture. In the ancient world, families would lose their socioeconomic standing if they did not follow primogeniture. Okay, work like this. Here's a family, an example. Here's a family. Their net worth is $1 million. That may make you jealous. That may make you laugh, whatever. Right? Their net worth is $1 million. But back then, they had lots and lots and lots of kids. Why? Not because they were dumb, but because they were birthing the workforce, right? You didn't go hire people, you birthed people. And the more kids you had, the more land you could work. The more kids you had, the more crafts you could make. You birthed your workforce, kind of like you were an independent contractor and you birthed the workforce. That's how it worked. And so here's a family, follow me, who had a net worth of $1 million. If this family with a net worth of $1 million has 10 kids and they did estate planning and did their will and executed their will the way we do, and they had 10 kids, how much would each of the kids get? $100,000. Good. We have an accountant among us. Yeah, so see how that works? $1 million. Each of the 10 kids, upon the death of the parents, they would get, in our world, $100,000 because that's equitable. Right? But here's the problem. If you live back, back then, that family went from being a millionaire family now to be a 100K family. Okay? Each of the 100K families, they each have 10 kids. Uh-oh. Now, all of a sudden, each of their kids is going to get an equal share of their 100,000. So if each have 10, how much do those kids wind up with? Yeah, pretty soon you're winding up with, like, money to buy coffee at Starbucks next week, right? And that's all you got. So what would happen? That family, because of large birth rates, would immediately, all families would eventually be in poverty. So the law of primogeniture says this. The firstborn son gets the preeminence and the priority and all the estate. So the firstborn son gets the million bucks. But the firstborn son gets the responsibility to care for the whole family. Jesus, the firstborn son, that's not saying he didn't exist and now he exists. It's saying Jesus has priority. Jesus has preeminence and Jesus has the responsibility to care for all of the adopted kids that are adopted by faith. That's what Paul's saying. You say, 
Well, why didn't he just say that? Because that was the first century. He did say it. We just read it in the 21st century, and it sounds different. Jesus is fully God. That's what Paul's saying. What did, what's it mean, Jesus, Son of God? He's fully God. All the fullness, look at it, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. Jesus equally got all the fullness in him. There's a kind of a childish way of thinking about the Trinity. The Trinity is like a giant pizza. But rather than cut it into, into eight slices, which is normal, we're going to cut the Trinity pizza into three. We have a father's son, a, sl a son's slice, and a spirit slice. And the Trinity is held together by melted mozzarella. Right? See how that works? And so now, that's, Paul's saying no. Because all the fullness, the whole pizza is in the Jesus slice. The whole pizza is in the Father slice. The whole pizza is in the Spirit. How does that work? I don't know. All the fullness dwells in the Son. The Father is fully God. The Son's fully God. The Spirit's fully God. That's how it works. Deity. That's the word. Deity. Christ is deity. And you've heard me say this before. Deity means authority. If Jesus is God and he created all things, the author has authority. Um, I had an experience of authority this week. I had a tire issue in my car. I didn't have a flat, and I'm glad because, you know, Kim doesn't like getting greasy, changing tires and stuff like that. Um, so it was no flat. My tire light, you have a tire light on your dashboard? It comes on. It drives me nuts. So I walk around, make sure I don't have a flat. Don't have a flat. Drive around, light stays on. So I'm figuring, oh, it got cold out, right? I know, when it gets cold, right? Did any of your lights go on this week? Temperatures go down, right? The air pressure kind of shrinks a little bit. So, you need. so I, I call Tony, because Tony has a compressor. If I go to the gas station, get my hands all dirty. It's a whole thing, all right? Call Tony, he'll put the air in, check it, and he's got a compressor. I mean, who has a compressor, right? Tony. Well, let's call Tony, go down. He puts the right amount of air in all the tires. He essentially says, you really need air, but I'll put some extra in. Put some extra. The light stays on. I then think, oh, okay, it's got to cycle through the program. You think like this? Cycle through the program. Two days later, the light's still on. It's a long program, I'm guessing, right? So what do you do when you don't know what to do? You Google. So I Google, what the heck? Why is my tire light staying on and all? Because my spare also has an air pressure sensor. I mean, who would have thought, right? I guess I'm glad the spare has a tire, you know, pressure sensor because, you know, when your spare's low, you don't want to put it on. It doesn't have enough air. What moron would have put a sensor in the spare, right? That's my first thought. Well, whoever manufactured the car, they manufactured a the car. They're allowed to put the sensor wherever they want to put the sensor. They could have put the sensor in tires in your garage if they want. They put the sensor in the spare and the four tires because they're the manufacturer. They can do whatever they want with the car they made. What's this say? All, Jesus created all things. They've been created through him and for him. Deity and authority. Jesus has authority to do what he wants to do. And Jesus has authority to rule the cosmos. Our responsibility is to get in step with that. whole lot in Peter's answer, isn't it? He did pretty well this day. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Eh, but we're not done yet. Because there's another side to Messiah that actually grows and develops through the Old Testament. And the new side to Messiah is Savior. It kind of works like this. 
It starts out Messiah, Christ, just means anointed. And kings were the primary ones anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. And so somebody was anointed with authority. They were anointed for their position. But as time rolled on, Messiah began to pick up other meanings. And it really takes root in Isaiah. Isaiah then writes a number of songs that are called servant songs. And in the servant songs... The anointed one, right? There it is. That's Messiah. The anointed one, the Messiah, is the servant. And maybe the pinnacle of the servant songs is Isaiah 53. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has gone to our own way. But God caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Well, wait a minute. I thought Messiah was like conquering king, you know, coming in with a sword and a white horse. All of a sudden, Isaiah says, oh, yeah, 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 all that stuff's there. But there's also this other side to Messiah. There's the servant side. There's the serving side. There's the sacrificial side. There's the Savior side. And this Messiah is going to take all of our sins and kind of put them on his shoulders, and he's going to pay the debt that we owe. In fact, there were people in Jesus' day that were looking for two Messiahs. They were looking for the king Messiah and they were looking for the suffering savior Messiah. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm him. I'm him. Colossians 1 talks about this saving side. And here's how, uh, here's how Paul does it. See if you can pick out the savior words in what Paul writes. Jesus who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See all the Savior words? He qualified you. Notice, you don't qualify yourself. He qualifies you. Have you ever been invited to an exclusive place to eat or golf or somewhere like that? Um, I've eaten numerous times at, at the Union League in Philadelphia. You have to be a member and have to dress appropriately to get in. I know that now, but the first time I didn't. So I show up at the door, I guess they can tell I don't belong. They say, and who are you here with? I give them the person's name. They say, okay, yeah, he's inside waiting for you, but you're not dressed appropriately. They then bring out a rack of jackets, and you pick a jacket in your size. You put it on because you have to go in with a jacket, and you have to be with someone that's a member. That's being qualified by somebody else, not in and of yourself. And so what's this kingdom of God thing like? We're never going to be qualified in and of ourselves. We're qualified because Jesus, the one who's qualified, qualifies us. We're with him. That's how we get in. Then you get the word rescue. That's another kind of salvation word, right? Rescue means you're in a situation where you can't help yourself. If somebody doesn't come and help you, you're doomed. I was slipping through the stations the other night, and I see these people kind of skating and falling on ice, and there's something about... I guess the male mind that likes to see people get injured if they're not involved, right? So I'm watching these guys kind of fall on the ice. I'm laughing to myself. And all of a sudden, this guy falls, slipping across the ice. The ice breaks, and he falls into the water. It's really funny now, right? And then all of a sudden, I'm watching, and I realize he can't get out. I mean, people on, on, the, on the lake, and on, they're panicking now, right? He's going under. He's going. A couple other guys go over and try to rescue. They fall in, too. Now they got like five or six people in the hole. None of them can get out eventually after what seemed like you know a half hour or so they get ladders and eventually with ropes they eventually get everybody out i was thinking about that picture when i read rescued the next morning because that's kind of what it's like that guy needed to be rescued he didn't need swimming lessons 
He didn't need to try harder. He was going down if somebody that wasn't in the hole could reach in and pull his butt out. That's what he needed. That's what Jesus did. We need somebody outside of ourselves to come and rescue, do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Redemption, the exchange. Jesus pays to bring us freedom and the forgiveness of sins. You see, we get all of those things for free. Jesus paid the price and all of the results come to us. That's salvation. What do all of these things have in common? Step one of a 12-step program. Admit you have a problem. Go to your mechanic and get your problem with your car fixed. Admit that you have to go to a mechanic. Have surgery to bring the cure. Admit you have a problem. Go to a financial advisor because your finances are a mess and begin to get on the right track. Every situation in our lives begins with the admission of a problem if we're going to get out of the mess. You see, that's the downside of Jesus being Savior. If Jesus is Savior, in order to be our Savior, we have to admit we have the problem or we can't get out. And so the beginning of the Savior piece, admit we're in a situation where we're not qualified. We need to be rescued. We need to be redeemed. We are guilty and need to be forgiven. Jesus is Savior who provides all of those things. So who do you say that he is? I hope you say the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I have one last question. So what? So you learn some cool things maybe about Caesarea Philippi, learn about Panios, learn about, so what? Well, it really is a big so what, isn't there? If what we just talked about is true, that should pretty much change everything in our lives, don't you think? Let me explain it this way. If what I said is true, three things need to happen in our lives. Reordering, relinquishing, and rejoicing. The Eagles have a new coach and a new quarterback this year. Thank God. <laughs> Old Chip's losing in San Fran now yeah, instead of losing here. Doug Peterson's our coach. Carson Wentz is the QB. But we don't just have a new coach and a new quarterback. Everything's different now, right? Last year with Chip Kelly in charge, we run a super hurry-up offense, which meant our defense lived on the field. They had breakfast on the field, lunch on the field. They lived out there. They were exhausted, right? All our defensive players lost 40 pounds during the season, right? Now that Doug's here and Carson's here, our defense gets a breather every now and then, right? Time of possession means something now. Keeping the ball, running the clock. See, all that stuff's important now. You get a new coach, you get a new quarterback, it changes everything. If you get a new king, that changes everything. And can I just say, if it hasn't changed anything, you don't have a new king. You may say you do. If nothing in your life has changed, you are not a Christian. Where Christ is king, there will be change. Now, we're, talking, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about steps and progress. You get a new coach, you get a new quarterback, things begin to change. You get a new king, you get a new coach, things begin to change. If nothing's changing, nothing's changed. How about relinquishing? Remember the two little circles again? Maybe the hardest part of this whole drama of following Jesus is getting out of his seat. Isn't it? Because we think we know how life should go. You know, we're real smart. We love ourselves. We know how this, we want to write the script for our lives. Don't be a fool. 
Step out of Jesus' seat and let him take the seat. Let him be the decision maker. Let him call the shots. Then in the nitty gritty and the big pictures of life, relinquish the throne to him. But you know, sometimes we think of the Christian life as nothing but drudgery, kind of reordering my life, finding out what Jesus wants and then doing it, and relinquishing the throne to him. Can I tell you something? Following Jesus is a life of rejoicing, isn't it? Let me show you what Paul writes. And if this doesn't get your rejoicer working, your rejoicer's broken, all right? Here's what Paul says toward the end of the chapter. Check this out. Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. That's true of every one of us in this room. Once we were alienated from God, enemies in our minds because of evil behavior. But now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. You want a reason to rejoice? There are three of them. Holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. Boy, that should put a song in our, in our mouths and a joy in our heart that we just can't stop. Once we were alienated, now we're reconciled. And we have no blemishes before God. No one will ever stand and accuse us if we're in Jesus. That's a reason to celebrate, right? I like how the chapter ends. So how do you put this all together? Yeah, it leads to reordering and relinquishing and rejoicing. And at the very end, Paul writes this. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we can present everybody complete in Christ. Can I tell you? That's why we do all that we do at Calvary Church. We proclaim Him. I'll give you a homework assignment. If from this stage or in Quakertown, in your ABF, in your small group, if anyone else or anything else is proclaimed as the center, find another church. We proclaim Him. He's the point and the purpose. That's what we're about. We admonish and teach every man to make everybody complete in him. That's what we're about. That's why we do Quakertown. That's why we do what we do. That's why we have all the ministries that we have proclaiming him, King, Son of God, Savior. But we get to think about it. Now we get to go live it. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks. For sending Jesus and for clearly telling us who he is. And so Jesus, we echo Peter's words this morning. You are the king. You are the son of God. You are the savior of the world. And Lord, give us the desire, the passion, and the will to make Jesus our king. The son of God in our lives our Savior. And may we unashamedly rejoice in that and live and speak proclaiming Him. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, you folks have a great week. If you want to hang around and talk to somebody, there'll be people up here to talk to you. Otherwise, let's go do it.